Okay, in a brief review of the announcements, because my sheet's gone, we need to pray for Jeff Phipps. He's down in uh, Brazil uh, this week. I think he comes back around the end of the week. We need to pray for him. He has uh, texted me yesterday that he um, uh, things have gone well so far, and to continue to pray for him. Let me see if I can quickly find his... Uh, nope. Quickly isn't working. So we need to pray for pray for Jeff. We need to pray for uh, some of the folks in the church that are facing some uh, serious illnesses. Let me see what else is there. The, uh, other announcements: uh, Vacation Bible School. Plan on that. If you can get copies of the flyer that we have, you can give to people in your neighborhood, um, anyone you know that has kids of that age. Uh, then you can do so. Uh, it will be the last week, the last Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in July. I can't think. Alan, can you think of anything else? Yeah. Pop quiz. Can anybody think of any other announcements? No, nobody's been paying attention. Barb. Hmm? Oh, baptism service on July 9th. And that will be at 1 o'clock at Grace Bible Church on Schroeder Road. So if anybody else uh, is interested or participating, let me know or Pam Richards know. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure you are walking by the Spirit, not according to the flesh. If necessary, through silent prayer, confess sin, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, and we're immediately forgiven of those sins. And then cleanse from all unrighteousness. What a tremendous act of the grace of God. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together. This evening to study your word, to reflect upon your grace, to learn about what you've provided for us, to learn of the examples that you have set forth in the Old Testament that are exemplars for how we should live our life as well as types that we may come to understand more about uh, the Messiah and our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight that we might uh, focus on how this shapes our thinking and our confidence in Christ, our confidence in your word, and how we should be focused upon obedience to you. Father, we pray for Jeff as he travels down in Brazil. We pray for the different groups he's speaking with. We pray for his energy, his health. We pray that he might be clear in his communication. And Father, we pray that you will bless his ministry down there. Father, we pray too for Jim Myers and Phyllis as they prepare to return on Monday and fly back here. And we pray that you will make their their flight easy and little difficulty and safe. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 26, 1 Samuel 26, and I've titled this lesson, David's Faith Vindicated, because one of the words that shows up in the text is righteousness, and one aspect of righteousness is vindication. And what we see here is an interesting pattern. I've been reading through the last uh, several chapters in Samuel. In fact, today I was starting to crank my way into the next chapter and realized that last week I didn't really go through chapter 26. I was spending the time also in overview and how important that is to have this understanding of the structure of what is the writer trying to uh, communicate to us. And so I put together a little chart here of the uh, last eight chapters in 1 Samuel and what happens. And notice who the central character is in each one of these particular chapters. In chapter 24, the focus is on David as he is uh, trying to hide from Saul and then Saul surprises him as they're hiding in a cave, and Saul comes in to take care of private business, and David is encouraged by his men, now this is God's will. You can take him out right now. Just just take your sword. He's he's within sword length. You can you can skewer him right now, and he's David isn't as confident. Not that he lacks confidence, not that he's wishy-washy, but when you compare his statements on the Lord's anointed, which comes late in that story of 1 Samuel 24, compared to how strong and early it appears in 1 Samuel 26, what we see is that in the progression, he comes to truly understand, and his confidence in that is, is, is strengthened. And it, but it's a private vindication, as we'll see. And 25, sandwiched between those two chapters, God takes care of this horrible, nasty old man who's a fool because he lives as if God doesn't exist. He is a type of Saul. He uh, uh, is, There's a lot of comparisons within the text that make us think of Saul as we read it. One who lives as if God doesn't exist, if the law is not there. Now, that's important. Because what's happening through these chapters is there's this comparison and contrast going back and forth between David and Saul. David is righteous. David is called a man after God's own heart. David is the anointed who is going to who is obedient and concerned about God's glory in contrast to Saul who isn't. And Saul is in, in many ways David is a type of Christ. He is a he is a an anointed king. He's the word for anointed is Mashiach. So is Saul. Saul, I believe, was a believer. But Saul is in such total disobedience that Saul's life is a picture or a type of Antichrist and because he's against David. And it's a, he's more of a type of Antichrist than, and David is a type of Christ. So we we see this going on. Uh, another thing that is going on in the progression of First Samuel since First Samuel seventeen is that God is working in David's life to prepare him for the kingship. 
And just as I pointed out last time when we studied the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, Abraham grows over a period of about 30 years. He grows to spiritual maturity, and God takes him through. You can identify 10 distinct uh, tests, and each of those tests for Abraham are related to the promise that God gave to Abraham, the promise that he would have a seed and that that seed would be through him and Sarah, and that God would bless all the world through that seed. But Abraham didn't really trust that that would happen. First he thought, well, God bless uh, his servant Eliezer, and then later uh, he succumbs or is is, uh, convinced by Sarah that he should uh, try to get her handmaiden pregnant, raise up that son as his, and then finally... He comes to learn that God really is going to provide a son through Sarah and that that promised son is going to be the one through whom the promise will go. And that's important uh, to understand that. And by the time he gets to uh, Genesis 22, he's convinced that God's going to do it through Isaac. So when God asks him to sacrifice Isaac, he doesn't waffle. He doesn't wobble. He doesn't go weak at the knees and say, oh, how can you ask me to? kill my son. Hebrews tells us because he knew God could raise him from the dead. So he had that confidence. He has passed those tests moving towards spiritual maturity. We see the same thing with David. David learns something with Nabal. He learns that God is going to take care of his enemies, that that David doesn't need to handle it himself. He can trust the righteousness of God to handle the situation, and he doesn't need to get his hands dirty uh, trying to do God's role. And so then we come to 1 Samuel 26, and we're going to see as we go through that tonight that this is a public vindication. There are a lot of similarities between 24 and 26, and some of the lessons are the same. But what we see in in chapter 24 is when David comes out of the, the cave Saul's in front of him, but the text doesn't emphasize that there's anybody else around. It's just David and Saul, and David holds up the part of the robe that he cut off and said, see, I'm not trying to kill you. And then Saul goes into his little remorse over the whole thing, but there's no suggestion that his army or anybody else is really witnessing this. But in chapter 26, when David does this, And when he comes in and he has the opportunity to kill Saul and then he takes Saul's uh, 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 spear and he takes, uh, I think it's a a clay pot or something else. Um, When he takes that and he goes off to the hill and he shouts back, everybody in the army hears. It is a public vindication. Everybody sees the evidence that they've been chasing David, Saul's been giving them the fake news, that David has been uh, uh, trying to kill him all this time, and that they need to pursue him and kill him. And here's David, and he's got the evidence. I'm not trying to kill Saul. So it's this section is about David. Saul is there, but secondarily, it's primarily about David. And then in chapter 27, David wakes up and he goes, 
He thinks, Saul, Saul is not going to change. I can't stay here in the land. I've got to go somewhere because my family is at risk. Notice how he thinks through the issue with his family. We're going to talk about what's going on in chapter 27 because it seems like he's playing a double game. He seems duplicitous, deceptive. What's going on here? It would be easy for some to say, well, David is... Um, is not following the Lord. He doesn't uh, call upon um, uh, Abiathar to bring the ephod. He doesn't pray to God. He just makes his own decision. So what is really going on in chapter 27? Then in chapter 28, Saul, who is not getting any guidance from God anymore, and Samuel is dead, really goes to the pits of spiritual uh, a failure, and he decides to go to a necromancer, that is someone who claims to be able to get in touch with the dead, and he's going to go to the necromancer. She's not a witch. She's not like um, Ding Dong, the witch is dead in um, Wizard of Oz. This is a necromancer. That's the idea, someone who is bringing up the dead, and it's a totally fraudulent operation, as we'll see, and she really gets uh, quite a surprise. But Saul demonstrates his own carnality and how, uh, how much he has fallen into uh, rebellion against God. Then in chapter 29, if you think about this as a drama, or let's say you're reading a murder mystery, and you read a good writer, what happens? You have one chapter, and it takes you up to a point and then when you go to the next chapter, it shifts the scene to somebody else or something else. And then you read that, and that brings you up to a little bit of a, a crescendo, and then it switches to another person. And so it may be two or three or four chapters because before you pick up the first thread with the first character. That's what's going on here. David in chapter 27, and then Saul in chapter 28. And then we come back to David. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen to David because he's gone back to Gath, and he's with Achish, and he's going to get in a bind because Achish is raising an army to go against Israel and wants and has hired David as his permanent lifelong bodyguard. What's going to happen to David? So we're sort of left hanging there when the scene shifts to Saul, and then it shifts back to David in 29 and 30, and then finally we reach uh, the climax of First Samuel in First Samuel 31. So what I want to do is, tonight, I'm going to go through 26. Next week, we'll cover David, 27 and 29 together as one unit. Both of those are short chapters, and so it's good to fit them together. And then we'll talk about Saul. We'll probably come in in chapter 30, do 27, 29, and 30 together. That can all fit. It's mostly narrative, so it can go quick, quickly. And then we'll do Saul 28 and 31. So we're approximately three weeks away from finishing 1 Samuel. But it, like I said at the beginning, it flows right into 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 1 takes up just where 1 Samuel, they, they split the scroll at that point because it was the whole book of Samuel was too long to fit onto onto one uh, one scroll. So let's think about coming into chapter 26. Let's think through in a little more precision 
what's happened with David up to this point since chapter 17. First of all, we've seen 18 different attempts on David, uh, excuse me, 16 different attempts on uh, David's life since uh, the battle with Goliath. Saul has attempted to kill him uh, 16 times. This is the 16th time actually in chapter 26. And David, it would be, it would seem, be totally justified, perhaps on a even a self-defense argument, to take Saul out. Saul is murderous. Saul is is he's psychopathic at times. He is so angry. He is so consumed with his bitterness and his anger, his resentment, and his desire for revenge against against David that he has lost all sense of reason and he has lost all sense of control. He is just uh, totally consumed with David. He is operating on emotional sins. And so what happens when David does uh, present evidence that he's not trying to kill him, we get emotional remorse. We don't get genuine change of mind, genuine repentance. He is uh, completely off the rails. Second thing that we've witnessed is the development of this deep friendship between David and Jonathan, probably a 15 to 20 year difference in their ages. Uh, Jonathan is extremely mature. He's spiritually focused. He understands that God has taken the kingship away from Saul's family and he's given it to David. And yet his loyalty of an older man to a younger man, he's loyal to David, he's loyal to, because he's loyal to God. And so they, the two of them enter into a covenant, not because Jonathan is trying to protect himself, but in order to enhance their personal uh, friendship. It's like you know, liberals will come along and say, oh, there's, there's undertones of homosexuality here. That's just absolute garbage. They're, they are um, they're like blood brothers, if you take it into another, another context. They, they have each other's back. They are like uh, warriors in an army that are battle buddies, that depend upon each other and trust each other. And so that's, that's the context here. And so they are extremely loyal to each other. A third thing we've seen is David's uh, marital life. He's given Saul's daughter, Michal, as his wife. And uh, while he is gone in exile, Saul, in order to uh, exact his revenge against David, gives her to somebody else, divorces her from, from David and gives her to somebody else. And But if David is married to Michal, then we also recognize that Jonathan, whom he refers to as his brother, is. He's his brother-in-law. So there is that relationship. A fourth thing we observed is the development of Saul's arrogance, the progression of that as he just goes out of control, so much so that God gives him over to an external oppression by evil spirits and demons. And this is a way also to give an, uh, an example of what uh, of David as a type of Christ showing that he can control the, the demons. He is depicting that that will be true in the person of Jesus Christ. So he comes in and through uh, playing the harp, 
he is able to soothe um, uh, Saul's uh, insanity and his um, irrationality, and the demons are put at bay. So that is a another one I'm going to be pointing out a lot of this as we go through the next few chapters. As David comes to maturity, we see him fulfilling the role of a true messianic king as a type of the future God-man messianic king. In contrast to, to uh, Saul, he is providing protection for his people like a good shepherd. He is feeding his people. He's taking care of them. He is... Um, he is obedient to the Torah. He's obedient to the law. In that case, he is practically righteous. He is vindicating God's choice of him as as the anointed king. And so this plays up and is the, the constant theme of these sections that he's qualified and Saul is not. And in his qualifications, we see him as a type of, or an example or picture foreshadowing of the ultimate Messiah. We also learn in those chapters, from chapters 18 uh, through 21, of the increased relationship between David and Samuel. It's just hinted at here and there, but when Saul has tried to kill him six or seven times, then finally David flees, and he goes to Ramah, and he sits down, and he talks it over with Samuel. What do I do? What's going on? Here's what Saul's doing. How do I respond to this? And I think at that point, Samuel confirms to him and gives him the guidance to understand the importance of not harming the Lord's anointed. He has those conversations with Samuel. While he is there, his enemies report back to Saul that he is with Samuel. And so Saul begins to send his men uh, to arrest David, but when they get there, we see that God is both directly and indirectly intervening to protect David. And so as the men approach, somehow the Holy Spirit overpowers them and intervenes to stop them, and they fall in among the other prophets. And as we saw the study of that word, that doesn't mean that they're having some sort of ecstatic utterance, but they are singing praise to God. That singing of hymns and the Psalms was one form of prophecy. It is at that point that Saul decides if all of his messengers uh, can't do the job, he'll do it himself, and the Holy Spirit overpowers Saul. In that opportunity, David leaves, and he escapes first to Nob. And so we have this um, map here. David has gone from Gibeah of Saul to Ramah to consult with Samuel. Then he goes to Nob, where he and his men are hungry. They go to the priest. They say, give us something to eat. The priest say, the only bread we have is the from the table of showbread, the bread that is supposed to be for the priests. And David says, give it to me. And and they do, and that's legitimate. And so then he escapes there, and he's going to go to Gath. This is in First Samuel twenty-one, and this is the um, this is where he goes, thinking that he can hide. This is early on in his exile from Saul. I think that he is. We we know that uh, chronologically, at the end of chapter twenty-seven, 
when David goes to Achish, we're told in chapter 29 that he serves Achish for over a year. So I think that this time period here from 1 Samuel 17 or 18 uh, up through the end of 1 Samuel is a minimum five or six years and maybe a maximum of 10 years. We, we can't say, but these kinds of things take time. They're walking everywhere. Uh, how long did it take for David to, during those early chapters in 17 and 18, when he has to uh, attack the Philistines and and uh, bring back all their foreskins to to Saul, how long does it take him to accomplish that? What are the logistics to pull together a team of men to uh, go out into combat and do all of those kinds of things? That takes time. The, the marriage to uh, Michal, this takes time to set these things up. They're not just rushing through these events. So I think this probably takes somewhere to f- from between five to ten years. And in that time, David has to learn to rest in God's provision. We looked at the Psalms that he writes during this time and saw how he cried out to God, uh, turning to God that God is his... Um, God is his fortress. God is the one on whom he has confidence. He's learning to express that confidence to God and then to praise God for delivering him. All of this shows his spiritual growth and maturation during this period as he is going through this testing. Uh, this is how this is how we grow. This is how we uh, this is how we mature. So. We have uh, David escaping to Nob and then to Gath. And then when he is at Gath, um, he is he's, goes undercover. He's in disguise, but his uh, cover is blown. And uh, he has to fake being, uh, being insane in order to escape. Uh, Achish is the king in Gath, whom we'll see in chapter 27. Uh, Achish, at that point... Thought that Saul, I mean, thought that David might be sent there by Saul. He doesn't understand the conflict that's going on inside the uh, inside of Israel between Saul and David. By the time we get to chapter twenty-seven, he understands what's going on. But at in the chapter twenty-one, he did not. So David escapes to Gath, and uh, and he then escapes from Achish. And he goes from Gath down to the cave of Adullam where he has 400 men come to join him. Now, it only counts the men. It doesn't count their wives and their children. Uh, and so it could have been as many as six or 700 that join. That's a pretty good crowd that you're having to take care of. And it shows the role of the Messiah in providing for his people. He has to organize them. He has to... Uh, provide for their uh, food. When you have that many people camping together, you have to take care of all the details related to cooking, related to sanitation, related to uh, protection from the elements, all of those things. And David is learning those and demonstrating those leadership traits uh, during that time at the cave of Adullam. And more and more people are uh, coming to his banner, and they're the outcasts. They're the people who are at odds with Saul, the people who have also been declared uh, enemies by Saul, and by the time we get to chapter uh, twenty-six, 
We learned that Dave, in 25, we learned that David has 600 men. He takes 400 out, leaves 200 to protect everybody else. And so if he's got 600 men, he could have 1,000 or 1,200 people with him in total. So he has learning to take care of all of them. And here we see that contrast between David and Saul as as David exemplifies the role of the Messiah. And the other thing that we see as we go through this is that people struggle with Saul. But Saul is a picture of God's grace to the rebellious believer. And and if you come to the text with the idea of lordship salvation that well he didn't he wasn't real obedient so he probably wasn't saved then you've missed the whole point is that God's grace is extended again and again to uh, to Saul. In fact, the one last big event we see before his death on Mount Gilboa is that God, in his grace, I think, allows Samuel to come back from the dead to one last time confront Saul with his disobedience and an opportunity to uh, turn back to God, which, of course, at this point, he doesn't. And he wouldn't, but God continues to extend grace to Saul. And we'll get into that when we get into into uh, chapter 28. So we constantly see this picture uh, of David. Another thing that we see with, with Saul that, that people miss is that God gives each one of us freedom. He gives us freedom to succeed and freedom to fail. And you're only free to succeed to the degree that you're free to fail. If you come along like the government tries to in socialism and in communism and to provide a so-called safety net, the higher the safety net is, the lower the ceiling becomes for success. Because to control people's uh, consequences from their own failure means you have to limit, you will automatically limit their success as well. And the more you control people so that they don't fail, the more you're going to have to limit the opportunities uh, to succeed. So we see that God gave Saul freedom all the way through his life, and he used that freedom to pursue his own ends, just as many believers do today. We see so many different believers who just, the only thing they care about is their job, their career, uh, pursuing their own personal pleasures. Uh, they're not concerned about the fact that God has saved them. Scripture says that we are not our own. We are owned by God. He has saved us for a purpose. We have a mission in life, and we're to grow to spiritual maturity and serve the Lord in whatever capacity uh, that may be. But if we turn our back on the grace of God, God will bring discipline into our lives and we will fail to uh, really enjoy all of the many blessings that God would have given us. One other thing that we see here, going back to when David uh, escapes from Saul, goes to Nob, then Saul slaughters all the priests at Nob, slaughters the high, kills the high priest Ahimelech, his son uh, Abiathar, uh, escapes and comes to David, and we see that David in his uh, role exemplifies the role of the Messiah in protecting the, the word of God, because Abiathar is a source of divine revelation, 
and we see the value that David places on the word of God by protecting uh, Abiathar. And so he uh, protects those who are spiritually focused on God. In chapter 23, he protects the inhabitants of Kailah, and his men are fearful. As Kailah is being attacked by the Philistines, David says, we need to go protect them. His men are fearful. Uh, David goes to the Lord for guidance. God uh, affirms this is what he is supposed to do and provides for them. And then in the last couple of episodes that we studied in chapter 24 with David in the cave at En Gedi, and then the situation with Nabal, both of these are teaching David that that God is going to protect him, provide for him, and he doesn't need to take matters into his own hands. That's where we sort of finished, focused on that some uh, last time, that... um, uh, in the first episode at En Gedi, David might have been a, a little uh, a little wobbly. He was focused on the right thing. He did the right thing, but he's not as as I said earlier, is not as confident in his expression that you can't harm the Lord's anointed as he is in chapter twenty six. In between, you have that episode with the fool Nabal, and when David. Uh, repents when Abigail confronts him and says, you can't take this mat. Basically, she says, remember, God is going to bless you. God has promised you. God is going to, uh, God has honored you. You fight the Lord's battles. Let him fight your battles. And David uh, repents truly, and he turns back from seeking his own vengeance against Nabal. And then God takes Nabal out uh, through the sin unto death just uh, a couple of Uh, just a few days later. So that's the background. Now we come to 1 Samuel 26.1. We're told the Ziphites, once again, chapter 23, the Ziphites did the same thing. They are Saul's henchmen. There are always people who are against the Lord. They cannot see truth. They are against the truth, and they will always ally themselves with the side of darkness, and it doesn't matter how much light you shine in their eyes. They will never, ever get it. We see a lot of that in this country today. People are so committed against biblical truth that anybody, whether they're a believer, because President Trump is not a believer, but anybody who's standing for establishment truth, if you stand for biblical marriage, one man and one woman, then you're a tyrant. You hate people. I mean, the the hyperbole that is expressed against uh, against people who stand for, even if they're not Christians, who are standing for uh, establishment truth, uh, the truths of the five divine institutions, then they are they are attacked mercilessly, and so people from from the Ziphites are the same way. Doesn't matter to them that David is God's anointed and that Saul is. Um, just a a bloody sociopath and psychopath it's that that they are going to be aligned with him and so they they spy out where david is and they come and report uh to saul now there are certain similarities between this episode in chapter 24 and there are a number of scholars who say, the lib- liberal scholars who say well they're just repeating the same story again because it sounded like such a good story. And there are a lot of similarities. For example, 
In 1 Samuel 23:19, the Ziphites report on David's movements to Saul, just as they do in 26:1. Following that, David, we're told in the first episode, was in the wilderness fleeing from Saul. We're told that he had an opportunity to kill his pursuer. We're told that someone suggested that this is God's will. God, Yahweh has given you this opportunity. We're also told that because David respected the anointed of Yahweh, that he refused to kill Saul in both instances. But nevertheless, he took a piece of evidence to show that he could have if he wanted to. And then Saul recognized David's innocence and that David was right. Now, that's pretty broad, and those are some general themes. However, when you look at the details, you realize that they are different episodes. They both start with the Ziphites, who seem to be spying for Saul, reporting on David's movements. In the first episode, it's in the wilderness of Engedi. In the second episode, it's in the wilderness of Ziph. In the first episode, Saul appears before David. David's in a defensive position. He's hiding in the cave. But in the second episode, David is on the offensive. He is sending out spies. He is sending out his scouts and recon teams in order to identify where Saul is and what Saul is doing. In the first episode, Saul is by himself. He doesn't have his troops with him. He goes off in privacy to go where the king goes alone. And um, the whole episode there takes place in private, whereas the second time Saul is with 3,000 soldiers and everyone is a witness of what David has not done. Uh, In the first episode, David cuts off the hem of Saul's robe, and in the second, he takes his spear and his water jug. In the first episode, David comes out of the cave behind Saul and calls to him. And so this whole episode is taking place in a narrow range, a narrow area. But in the second episode, David goes up on a ridge just above the encampment and cries out to Abner, who is not only the general of Saul's army, but he is his chief bodyguard. He is the head of his uh, a national security agency and um, secret service, as it were, because it's his job to protect Saul's life. And David skewers him for being so irresponsible as to let the enemy come into camp. And he indicts him in front of all of the 3,000 soldiers, which is also an indictment of the 3,000 soldiers because they should all be protected. You know how large an encampment must be? of 3,000 soldiers, and David goes in there at night and uh, makes it past all those soldiers and sentries. Of course, we learned from the episode that God caused that to happen. He caused a deep sleep to fall on the soldiers, and David makes it all the way in, gets close enough to Saul to pull his spear out of the ground and then stab it into his heart. David takes the spear and the jug of water and leaves and goes up on a ridge and uh, challenges the people. So it's an indictment of the whole army and their failure to protect uh, to protect Saul. And then uh, we see that uh, as in bo- both Saul acknowledges David as the one who's the anointed king in the first episode, and in the second episode he uh, prays a blessing or he announces a blessing 
on uh, David. So those differences are what's important. They're not the same episode. They're similar, but similar doesn't mean identical. And so these are very, very distinct uh, episodes and uh, situation. Now, in the first verse, we're told these Ziphites have gone to report to Saul at Gibeah, where David is hiding. We're told that he's hiding at the hill of Hachila opposite Yeshimon. Now, let me go back to the map here. Well, I went quite far from the... Nope. Let me go all the way back. There we go. Okay. Um, we don't know exactly where this is. There's no idea. It's somewhere down... Uh, the previous episode happened at Carmel in the south in the Judean wilderness between the wilderness of Zeph and wilderness of Maon. So it's somewhere in this area, but we don't know exactly where that is, but it doesn't matter. Saul knew exactly where that was. And so then he got 3,000 troops, chosen men, as we've seen in the past. This term means the elite. It is the um, the choice ones. It's not that he has uh, elected them or selected them per se. It's emphasizing their quality. He has his best troops with him, the men of Israel, and they're going after uh, David in the wilderness of Ziph. The 3,000 is the same number as in uh, chapter 24, and it's the same number of sheep that Naval had in chapter 25. So that, uh, again, ties these episodes together. Saul takes his 3,000 and he encamps uh, in the hill of Hakila opposite Yeshimon by the road. So he's, he's not going up into the hill. He's there by the road, good transportation, good movement position. And David, though, stays in the wilderness. David is hiding. He's not coming out of cover and he's in a position where he can maneuver and get away from Saul because he's not really seeking a military confrontation. David has 400 men. Saul has 3,000. So this is, he's outnumbered. Uh, David, uh, then Saul goes into the wilderness to try to, try to find him. And in verse um, 4, we read, David sent out spies understood that Saul had indeed come. And then David comes in verse 5. Verse 5, David comes. David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. Now, he's doing this obviously under cover of darkness because, as we see, he goes in, enters the camp. Everybody's asleep, so he's, he comes in at night. And he sees, spies out the area, sees where Saul is lying. Saul has put his spear in the ground. That would be an indication this is where the commander is located. And he identifies his location. And David um, sees that Abner, the son of Ner, Abner's his uncle, he's the commanding general, uh, is next to him. And the people are encamped all around him. He is surrounded by people. So David after he gets this information, is talking to two of his top men, Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai the son of Zariah, the brother of, of Joab. And Ahimelech the Hittite, that's interesting. The name Ahimelech, it, it, means, um, it means my brother's king. 
Uh, it could have been a proper name as well, Ahimelech, but that's its etymological root. It's said to be a Hittite, and there were Hittites just as there are Mexicans and Germans and Iranians and whatever living in Houston. There were those who lived in uh, Israel who had other ethnicities. There were Hittites who lived there uh, at the time of the of the Canaanites. And so he would, to be close to David, he would have been a believer. Ahimelech is not a Hittite name. It is a Semite name, so that indicates that that the family had assimilated into that Semitic milieu there uh, in in uh, Israel, but the other, but he kind of fades out. He's not going to go with David. The one who will go with David is Abishai, and in First Chronicles two sixteen, we learn that the sisters, their sisters, that's the sisters of David and his brothers, were Zariah and Abigail. We talked about this last time with reference to Abigail. Zariah is his sister, and Zariah had three sons, Abishai, Joab, and Azahel. And here we're talking about Abishai. Joab has not been introduced to us yet. He comes into the foreground when we get into Second Samuel, somewhere around Second Samuel 3 or 4. Joab is introduced, and he becomes David's general, and he is... He would have worked well in the mafia. He is a hardcore, vindictive uh, general who's more concerned about uh, killing David's enemies than any kind, anything spiritual. So Abishai is David's nephew, as Joab will be, his nephew. Uh, and as we look at this whole situation with this test, we have to be reminded that as Messiah... David is going to go through, as, as an anointed king, he's going to go through these various tests. Jesus, as the Messiah, the antitype of the picture, also had to go through tests. Even though he was, he was um, a sinless, he still had to go through human maturity in his flesh. He had to mature and grow up. And so we see this, this is a pattern to fulfill the role as be the godly king that, that even the uh, type had to go through spiritual growth. Hebrews 2.10 reminds us that it was fitting for him, that is, God the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that is, church-age believers, to make the captain of their salvation, that is, God the Son, perfect through sufferings. That word perfect is teleao, which means uh, maturity. So to make them uh, perfect or make them mature through sufferings. Now, the test that David is going to go through here is an important test within the framework of the Torah. Because what David is demonstrating here is that he is a law by that I mean the Mosaic law. He's a law observer in contrast to Saul, who's not. David is observant of Torah, uh, the, the law of Moses. And as such, he needs to put the law, the revelation of God, over his experience, whatever that experience may be. 
so that in both of these tests, chapter 24 and chapter 26, he goes into a situation where his his stated enemy, his arch enemy, the man who is out to kill him is put within his grasp and his closest advisors say, this is God's will. Do it. God brought Saul right into your grasp. You, this is God's. Why else would God do this? It makes sense. God wants you to take out Saul. And David, like all of us, has to learn to trust the word of God over experience. Just because circumstances seem to suggest that you could do something, that option is there, doesn't mean that's what God wants you to do. This this circumstantial idea, we d- discussed this a lot when I went through the will of God a few weeks ago. Circumstances may or may not give us some sort of indication. In the law, there's a particular warning. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. And these passages, these verses should be underlined in your Bible. It is a test for false teachers. There's two in Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 13 is interesting for the way it begins. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. So in the first verse, it says, okay, somebody comes up and they say, they're, they're, God called them. They're a prophet. Or they've seen a vision. God has given them a vision, a message. And we sit back and we say, well, we know that's just fraudulent. We know people just make this stuff up. That these miracles that they allege are just bogus. And that's true for a lot of the stuff that we see. But notice what the scripture says in verse 2. God says, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. You see, at some time in the future when the Antichrist shows up on the scene, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he is going to confirm his power through many deceptive signs and wonders. It's not, he doesn't say counterfeit or false or fake signs and wonders. They're false because they don't come from God. Satan can counterfeit some of God's miracles, not all of them. We have the example of the Egyptian uh, magicians who were able to cause their uh, staffs to turn into cobras just like Moses' staff, okay, turn into a, a serpent. So God is saying, and this guy comes on the scene, and they claim to be from God, and they give you confirming evidence, and it's real. Guess what? God just letting that happen to test you to see if you're going to believe the word of God over your experience. That's what the verse says. Verse 2, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you. And then he says, let's go after other gods. See, after confirming a message, the message is what's important, not the miracle. Because his message doesn't fit with the Bible. It contradicts the Bible. It contradicts what God says. And so this guy does all these legitimate miracles. I have, in course of my time as a pastor, I've had people come in front of me who have been cured of stomach cancer, had been cured of lung cancer. They went to this healing service or that healing service. Last week, I went to a dermatologist, and I sat in the 
in the uh, waiting room, and there was uh, two ladies sitting there, a mother and a daughter, and uh, the nurse there, uh, our receptionist, didn't know me, and she found out I was a pastor. She said, oh, this lady over here is a pastor also, 92 years old. 1964, she was cured of stomach cancer. She's had a healing ministry all over the world. I said, isn't that nice? When the time or the place to say you're a heretic, you're a false prophet. But that's what that's what the Bible says. If that they do, I don't care if you were healed. I believe you were healed. There's all kinds of reasons you could have been healed other than what you think. But I I don't dispute the fact that you're healed. I'm, a lot of strange things can happen in this world. That doesn't mean God did it. Okay, and that's what this per, this passage is saying. If their message is false, that's the issue. It's the Bible tells us how to interpret our experience, not the other way around. Next verse, God says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, that's the issue. Are you going to put the Word of God over your experience? Or are you going to put your experience over the Word of God? That's David's test. God is giving him an experience twice. He's put Saul right in his grasp, and all his close advisors, his family, this is God's will. Take him out. God put him in your hand. And David has to go back. Am I going to believe the Word of God and obey the Word of God? And honor the anointed of God, or am I going to let circumstances and experience dictate my decisions? This is what Abishai said. God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear. It's not going to be you. It's going to be me. Let me do it. I'll drive that spear home, and I won't have to do it a second time. But David said, don't destroy him. This is the first time, at the very beginning, his first statement out of his mouth. It's not the first statement out of his mouth in chapter 24. It's the first statement out of his mouth now. That's why I say it's a stronger, more confident David. He said, don't destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? That's what he learned from Nabal. He can't be guiltless if he kills uh, somebody who gets in his way. Now, David's going to forget that later on when he gets into carnality with Bathsheba and he's going to have her husband put in a position where he's killed, but that's later in life. Uh, 1 Samuel 26.10, David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him. That's what he learned with Nabal. God struck Nabal. The Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take the spear and the jug of water that by his head. Let's go. Nice little conversation to have when you're surrounded by 3,000 of the enemy, right? But God's protecting them. David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke. Why? Because they were so stealthy? Because they learned how to be good sneaky Pete's at the uh, uh, Marine Corps Recon School? No. 
because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. That's God is active in this situation. He is controlling a situation, and it's a test for David. So then David, verse 13 and 14 tell us that, that David goes up. I've got to get back over to First Samuel. That David goes up and goes to the top of the hill and make sure he is in a safe position must be good acoustics there and he shouts out to the people specifically he calls out Abner and in verse 15 he says to Abner aren't you a man and who's like you in Israel you are the top soldier in Israel you are the general why then have you not guarded the Lord your king he is calling him out and putting him on the spot he is making it clear that this is Abner's responsibility and he is a failure. And by implication, all of the other 2,999 that are with Saul. He said, for one of the people came in to destroy uh, your Lord, the king. Now, one there doesn't mean he's saying that there was only one of us that came in. It's just a figure of speech that that they came in. Some people are trying to say, well, he's just talking about Abishai. But no, it's just a figure of speech for someone came in. Um, he's not be, trying to be specific to destroy the Lord your king. This thing that you've done is not good. As the Lord lives, so he is swearing an oath here, you deserve to die on the basis of Torah. You have failed to protect your king, and you deserve to die because you've not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And then he points out the evidence. Look look, look for the spear. Look for his jug of water. Where is it? Where's his canteen? Where's his water bottle? Where's his spear? Oh, it's up here with me. Wow, how'd that happen? Looks like you failed your on your responsibility. Verse 17, now Saul has awakened and Saul recognizes David's voice and says is that your voice David my son notice whenever he gets caught he gets real remorseful it's my voice my lord O king said David and then he said why does the lord thus pursue his servant why are you coming after me why are you chasing me what have I done what evil is my heart give give a reason what's your evidence because David's already given his evidence, and now it's public. It's in front of the 3,000 that he is not trying to take Saul's life. He has demonstrated that. They have spent years chasing David, operating on this fake news, and now Saul's been called out in public that this isn't true. And so Saul is remorseful. Verse 21, I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. So this is his confession. But David knows better than to put himself back into Saul's, uh, Saul's uh, area of responsibility because he knows Saul would kill him. And so he says, send up somebody, here's a spear, have, have some young man come over and get it. And then he says in verse 23, may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. See, he's, he has just indicted them all for being faithless and unrighteous. 
And now he says the lesson he learned from Nabal, let God repay you. He's turning it over to the Supreme Court of Heaven. He's not going to seek to handle it on his own. He's going to hand it over to the Lord because he would not stretch out his hand against the Lord, the Lord's anointed. In verse 24, and this, I think, is, is why I've structured this the way it is. I think this is a hermeneutical focal point of the, of the episode. Why has God included this? Verse 24, David's last statement, And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. Not in your eyes, but in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because I passed the test. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. David has learned that God is going to deliver him from his adversity, from his difficulty. All those prayers in those Psalms that we studied, David is crying out to God to deliver him. And now he is saying, God is going to deliver me from all my tribulations. That is what we need to learn. Whatever the trouble is, we need to learn to cast our care upon the Lord because he cares for us. God is our fortress. He's our strong tower. He is the one and the only one in whom we should have our confidence. And so at the end of the, of the uh, chapter, then Saul says to David, verse 25, May you be blessed, my son, David. He announces a, a benediction, a blessing on David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David put himself into Saul's arms. Is that right? No, wait a minute. David went on his way. See, that's wisdom. Does David have to ask God now, what should I do? Should I go back and go home with Saul? Or should I go on? What should I do? God, he doesn't ask for the ephod to make the decision. He doesn't pray about it. What does he do? He's got wisdom in his soul from the word of God that he's internalized. And that wisdom tells him not to put himself back into Saul's clutches, not to let Saul get control of him again. And so he goes his way. Now, the reason I say that is because in the next chapter, we start off, David says in his heart, I'm going to perish someday, so I can't stay in the land of Israel. I've got to go to the land of the Philistines because at least there I'll be outside of Saul's Saul's power, and I'll be safe. Now, some people would say, well, see, he's he's like Abraham going to Egypt. He's out out of fellowship. But David is working out of wisdom. He starts in verse 25. I'm not going to put myself under Saul's control because nothing negative is said about any of David's actions for the rest of the book. But he, it seems funny and awkward because he certainly seems to be uh, talking out, of, maybe talking out of both sides of his mouth when he reports to Akish and other things. And so we'll look at that next time. It's fun stuff. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that just as you will deliver David of all his tribulation, you deliver us from all our tribulation. Just as you test David to grow to maturity and tested our Lord Jesus Christ so that he could grow to maturity, so you test us so that we will learn to trust you to handle all of our adversities and all of our tribulation. Father, please strengthen our faith. Help us to know your word better and apply it more consistently. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.